This week I was posting top 10 reasons why you should go to church and be a part of church attendance. And if you don't follow me on Facebook, well, let me just bring it to a point. If you go to church regularly, it's quite interesting. You're 22% less likely to be clinically depressed. I actually got the footnote on my Facebook. You can research it yourself. You're more likely to have orgasms at high levels of satisfaction. Welcome to Soul Sanctuary. That's what church is all about. All right, uh, you're more likely to manage your life better. You're more likely to manage your time better. You're more likely to complete degrees. Congratulations to all those from university who uh, hit a milestone. You're actually more likely by regular church attendance to increase your academic milestones and uh, you're also more likely to increase your mental well-being. This is all by going to church. And if this isn't enough, regular church attendees leave, live significantly longer than the general population, usually 7 to 14 years longer, and even stranger, merely believing in the value of church attendance isn't enough. Go figure that. Only those who actually attend church events regularly experience many of those benefits. That's all done through uh, social science research. Couldn't believe it, but that's just the way it is. So welcome this morning. I hope you have long life and other blessings that go along with it, especially if you're married. Now... I'm pretty sure that most people here have heard the expression, if you've got it, flaunt it. And typically this expression means that if you have a great body such as mine, you don't hide it so modestly, but uh, you let everybody know just how you look. Um, if you have money, you spend it, dollar bill, dollar bill, right? You let people know that you're loaded. If you have a brilliant mind, you expose it so that people can see the genius within. If you, you, you show yourself off to the world to see. If you got it, you flaunt it. And perhaps you can see the problem with this idea if uh, for some bizarre reason in the Christian realm you assume that this expression is valid. Now I'm not sure if you know this but it's actually common for Christians to brag about how much they give, how much they pray, how much they serve and especially just how spiritual they are. And honestly, I think if you're a believer here this morning, all of us are actually guilty of this behavior at one point in time or another. And it's very easy to be spiritually smug and to let pride enter into our lives. And we all want to be recognized. That's, that's a fact. We all want to be appreciated. We all want to, let's be honest, we want to really impress people with our gifts. We want to impress people with our devotion. For some of us, it's even our love language. But yet the Bible is clear that we must seek to impress God and God alone. So here we are walking through Matthew. And uh, Jesus is talking, he's, he's doing the Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking to everybody who can hear, but he's specifically talking to his disciples. And he's basically saying, look, this requires a checkup now of our motives. Motives matter when it comes to being approved and rewarded by God. This, must, this means then that we need to do the right thing in the right way. So our text here in Matthew, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's sharing his insight to three spiritual disciplines. It's interesting how the Sermon on the Mount has shifted. Now, if you haven't been following in, in the Life Lesson teachings, you need to go back and you need to hear the progression of how Jesus has been teaching that brings us to where we are today. Matthew chapter 6, 1 to 18. 
He's talking to his disciples. He shares the insight of three very clear spiritual disciplines. But why does he choose these three worship practices, I can call them? William Barclay, he's a commentator, he says, To the Jew there were three great cardinal works of religious life, three great pillars of which good life was based, almsgiving, prayers, and fasting. Jesus would not for a moment have disputed that. What troubled him was that so often in human life, the finest things are done from the wrong motives. Very interesting as, as we go into this. So the first four verses of chapter 6 is where we're going to pick it up today. And Jesus addresses the how of giving. Now, he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by men. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Because truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Notice how Jesus starts off this passage here in, in chapter 6. He starts it off with a warning. He says, beware, be careful. So when we see that word, even in our own lives, we know that there's danger ahead. Kind of like maybe there's a bridge out of order, a road that's washed out. If we refuse to obey that sign, it can be not only foolish, but incredibly dangerous for us. So Jesus is giving us a warning. Beware. And he warns us to beware of seeking to impress people. How many of us just want to be liked? Right? How many of us have done things that we've regretted later on in life because we just wanted to be liked at that moment? And here he has a warning. And his primary concern is quite interesting because Jesus' primary concern, as we read, is all about our motives. That God looks at our heart. He looks at our motive beforehand, before the action. If our motives are to hear from people, ooh, ah, over our righteousness, over our work, then we have our rewards. It's on earth. It's not in heaven. And so Jesus gets our focus. His words are kind of absolute. It says anybody who does a good deed so to be seen and appreciated by others will lose his reward, no matter how good or how beneficial the deed is. It's imperative that as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, if you identify as that, that we do the right thing the right way. It's not about works. It's about the attitude of our hearts. Jesus says that when you give, and this is interesting because uh, the word when is a key word throughout the passage. Jesus doesn't say if, right? He says when you give. And he assumes that his disciples will give, which is also including you and I. Now, I've done a whole series of messages on giving. I've talked about updates where we are. And so, yes, we suffered for the first three months, but we've been able to recoup and finish off in the black in the last two. All right? So, uh, you know, I'm just throwing it out there. But he's saying, Jesus assumes when. But he's addressing the why. Why do we do what we do? So Jesus says that when, he, when we give, he doesn't want us to sound a trumpet, right? This is a figurative phrase, if you haven't picked it up already, from which we get our expression, toot your own horn. In other words, uh, you know, we don't give for the purpose of being honored, for 
by people. So when you walk in on Sunday and the joy baskets are right there, and those joy baskets, they hit you at the knees. There's a reason for that. You know, you bump into them, you, buy, you, you don't cough loudly when you're writing your check. <clears throat> right? You don't blow your horn. You don't slam dunk your offering into the baskets. You are not LeBron. All right? This is what he's saying. You don't give your name, you don't give so that your name is going to be inscribed on the building on the outside or on a brick for a list of all the other donors to see. Because if you do, basically what Jesus is saying is that is your reward. That word translated in full is a technical term for a commercial transaction. It means to, to receive a sum in full and give a receipt for it. So when you seek to impress people, you, you are not giving, but you're buying, is basically what Jesus is saying. You get what you paid for. A receipt, you know, if you can go and you get receipts, I keep all my receipts, here's one. Um, you know, you don't give with your right hand while, you know, you wave with your, your, your left hand as you're writing your check. You don't do that. You just drop it. You make it happen. But a receipt shows that you've made a purchase at some fast food joint for some food, if you can call it that, right? You paid for it, you've received it in full, you've consumed it, end of story. There's usually something that follows the consumption, which is usually not very good, but it's there. This is equally true when you and I seek to impress people instead of God. I am paid in full with no hope of future reward. Our reward is not here. Our reward is in heaven, and Jesus offers the alternative. He says, but when you give to the poor, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, or what your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And again, it's a hyperbolic phrase that, that means give in secret. That's all he's saying. You know, just give in secret. Just drop your check in the offering. Just send it in the mail. Just pay online. Text to give. Automatic withdrawal. All, all without drawing attention to yourself. Fold the check. Seal the envelope. Do what it needs to do. Just give in a spirit of simplicity and humility because it's an act of worship. And giving is an act of worship. And Jesus is just reinforcing that. You know, sometimes we should try to give anonymously even if it means that you're not going to receive a tax uh, deduction. A lot of people they give because they get a tax deduction. Try giving without the tax deduction every once in a while so that your giving will be in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret reward you. Again, there's nothing wrong with giving, with public giving. It's, it is an act of worship. But there's plenty wrong with our motive as to why we give. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's looking at our heart. He's asking us the question, what is our motive? Are we giving to impress people? Now, does this mean that you should never tell anybody what you give and uh, who you give to? No. As a matter of fact, when we open the Bible, we see in Acts 2, 45, uh, it tells us of Christians selling their possessions and giving to the needy. You keep reading in Acts 4, Luke tells us that Barnabas sold a field. He brings the money and he sets it at the disciples' feet. You know, if Barnabas was looking for status and prestige, then his motive was wrong. Actually, that's what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, and strangely, they ended up dead for that one. But the scripture reveals that Barnabas' act of generosity was commonly known amongst the believers. It was publicly and permanently recorded in the book of Acts. Go to Numbers chapter 7. Uh, there's a list of the names of the donors uh, in the tabernacle. First Chronicles 29 tells us exactly how much the leaders of Israel gave to build the temple. 
This is recorded in scripture. Why? Well, it's there for our encouragement and motivation. So Jesus is not objecting to the fact that people may know what you get, but uh, he objects to the fact of what are our motives and are we doing it for ourselves and not for God? We need heroes in the church. We really do. We need to know that our friends and our leaders are giving. And this motivates us and this challenges us to give even more sacrificially so that the word of Jesus can go right across the world. And when it comes to giving, we have to make sure that we do the right thing in the right way. The second practice Jesus addresses is prayer. Now again, we, we've done a lot of that even this morning. And his teaching on prayer is actually the centerpiece of the entire Sermon on the Mount from uh, chapter 5 to chapter 8. And and what Jesus does is he contrasts prayer, right? There's prideful prayer and there's humble prayer. And he says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they have to love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. But truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. But you, when you pray, go to your inner room, close your door, pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you're praying, don't use meaningless reputation as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they'll be heard for their many words. So don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. How many of you ever remember the first time you were asked to pray? You know, I'd like you to pray out loud. I don't know if you remember, you know, everybody else around you at that point in time probably seems to be these great prayer warriors. Then, you know, they open their mouths and there's this fluid and poetic and they quote scripture and they use the Hebrew names for God. And, you know, somebody leans over and asks you, hey, can you pray out loud? And you go, me, me, out, out loud? And maybe your first prayer was a caveman prayer. God, I me no good pray. You know, you're going off in that direction, Right. And so maybe after that initial shock and embarrassment, you decided to watch other people carefully because you didn't want to be caught off guard and you learn a few tricks from watching people in your life group or or people at church or other spiritual people. And all of a sudden you knew that, you know, if you were going to be called on the prayer, you knew now how to actually impress people uh, with your prayers. Let me help you out. For instance, you know, if you begin to shout and cast something out, that's the way to go with your prayers, right? You just make sure you yell the devil out of those people. You cast out that spirit. You use a lot of fire metaphors. You know what I'm saying? Consume us, oh flaming smoke of fire from God. You get out there. You make it happen. But then you would alternate because you have to do. You have to go fire and, and water, right? Because that's part of our worship and even in our singing, right? So you have to incorporate the water stuff, you know? Flood us with your dripping river of wetness, oh God. So, you know, you get it out there, right? And then you would follow the general rule of shouting during the fire and whispering during the water metaphors because that's what we do, right? As a matter of fact, I was at a conference about a year and a half ago. It was funny because they had a guy from South America preaching and he was preaching on fire, fire. I kid you not, he was yelling like this the entire time. And the kid is going with me, yeah. But fire from heaven. But he was Spanish, so it sounded like fire from Kevin. And I kept saying, who's Kevin? Who's Kevin? And where's the fire? But anyway, that's what it goes on, right? So when you finally run out of words, what you got to do and you don't know what to say, you exhale. <sighs> because people think that's spiritual, right? But really what that does, it gives you enough sense to, to find some weird, obscure Bible verse, probably in Leviticus, that deals with cloven 
hooves and oxen, right? Because it sounds pretty cool. And so you quote that, and you quote it passionately, and then you move into the metaphor of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And when people hear you, their confusion will quickly morph into deep respect. And, 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 you know, deep respect over your spiritual insight, assuming that you make that transition very correctly. And, you know, of course you act like you know what you're talking about and everybody else agrees with you. So don't forget, though, when you're praying to quote the names of God, right? Make sure you hack out the spitting Hebrew pronunciation so that, you know, you, sounds like you speak Hebrew fluently. You know, for you 80s folks, you know, you may want to quote the lyrics from Abe Grant's song, El Shaddai, spontaneously. It works out really, really well. And uh, remember, many young people actually don't know that song, so they're going to be really impressed, and they're going to want you to mentor them when it's all over. And finally, don't ever forget to add an accent when you're praying. Change your voice. Make it deep. Add the end at the end of every sentence. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, I don't know why, but they do that. Or Lord God, not God, G-O-D. No, it's Lord God, G-A-W-D. That's how it is. And amen, amen, amen. And I'm done. I pray for you. Do the blessing. See you later. Now, if you really want God to hear your prayer, you may want to take some different advice. Because seriously, our prayers reveal actually a lot about our theology. And in this passage, Jesus' concern is praying to impress others. He's not opposed to long prayers or public prayers, except when we're looking for accolades from people. And Jesus' point is this, when you pray to impress people, you're paid in full. The belief was that the endless repetitions of specific requests endeared the petitioner to God. And hence, God would be obliged to answer your request. And the problem was not that the Jews loved to pray. The problem was that the Jews made praying certain prayers a very rigid requirement. There's a custom that all Jews would pray certain passages of scripture in the morning before 9 a.m. And the same passage of scripture in the evening before 9 a.m. As a matter of fact, Jewish customs, moreover, required that a devout Jew would pray 19 specific prayers three times a day, once in the morning, once in the afternoon, once in the evening. Now think about that. Understandably, because they prayed these prayers day after day after day, there's a tendency for many to pray these prayers quickly as possible without thinking what they were actually praying. And so their prayers then became vain repetitions. God's meat blesses meat, yea, God, let's eat. You know, it was just stuff that we just recite. And Jesus says, don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And so I find it interesting that Jesus said that we don't need to pray these lengthy or hyper-spiritual prayers. He already knows what we need. Think about that. Now, he doesn't forbid long prayers. As a matter of fact, he himself is portrayed as praying at length in Luke chapter 6. He's also repeated himself in prayer on occasion according to Matthew 26. You know, he further instructs his disciples that they should pray at all times and never give up. And so Jesus' point is not that we should avoid long prayers, but we should avoid this Pharisaic misconception that prayers are effective precisely because they are long. And I think the best comparative example of prayer in the Bible is the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. The Pharisee prays 33 words compared to the tax collector 7. God heard the shorter prayer because it was offered to him 
with sincerity of heart rather than a longer prayer with one of pride. Again, it's not about what we do, it's the motive behind it. Then in chapter 6, verses 9 to 13, we delve into what is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. I've done a whole series of this. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but there's some things I want to address. Some people actually call this the Disciples' Prayer because it was designed for Jesus' disciples. And so Jesus is saying then to him, this is how you should then pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Next slide. Mm, nope. Mm, nope. There we are. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, in these five verses, there are a total of six petitions. Three petitions that promote God's glory. Three petitions that are about our own concern and well-being. And so Jesus says, pray this way. He doesn't say pray this prayer you know, verbatim 18 times a day. He says pray this way. In other words, our prayers should resemble the categories of content that sort of Jesus has laid out before us. This prayer really, if we think about it, is simply just a skeleton. And we are meant to add meat to the frame that Jesus provides. So uh, uh, the word our, our demonstrate that this prayer is, is for the gathered community. Remember, he's talking to people, not a person. And so he's saying, our Father. It's the gathered community. It's us as the collective. It's not just for private prayer. Only 15 times in the Old Testament, God is referred to as Father. And it's usually used in the context of Israel's the nation or the king towards Israel. Never is God called the Father of an individual, of, of humans in general. So when Jesus says, pray our Father, you know, the, the, the Old Testament would use Yahweh and Adonai. That would be the names of God that they would use. In the New Testament, he comes on the scene, and he begins to emphasize the fatherhood of God. He begins to expand this intimacy that we can have as we approach God in prayer. And at this point, this intimacy that Jesus is talking about, when you can call God, the creator of the universe, our Father, it blows his listeners' minds. He calls him Father. You're to call him Father. Father in heaven. There's this open relationship now, a kinship. There's now what Jesus is doing is that there's this personal invitation to talk and to correspond that you and I can actually talk to a holy God. He goes on, he says, your kingdom come. You know, in the New Testament, God's kingdom is expressed as both a present reality and a future to come. And Jesus inaugurated the kingdom when he walked the face of this earth in his earthly ministry. But the fulfillment of the kingdom will not be consummated until his return again. But we still pray, God, your kingdom come. Come in our life now. Come in our life in the future. Come in our world now. Come in our world in the future. And, and so it's interesting. He goes on, he then says that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is a prayer for God's control. Do you see what he's saying? This is a prayer for God's control of earth and your life as he has in heaven. 
In heaven, the angels respond to God's commands perfectly and immediately. That's just the way it is. God actually expects the same type of obedience from you and from me. This means that you and I are to go into our day saying, look, at Lord, I, I, I want to live this day for you. This day counts. May your will be done in my marriage. May your will be done in my family. May my work, my church, my neighbor, use me, God, today to fulfill your word perfectly, to fulfill it immediately. I don't want to make you look bad. I want to be your representative. That is really what our prayer is. But there's more here. When I read this, I find it very interesting. This stuff has been coming across my desk lately, and I find it interesting that this prayer is one of giving up control. I don't know if you see it. Jesus tells us to pray, God's will be done. Do you notice that it doesn't say, my will be done? Because there's a stream of Christianity that teaches that God is subject to the authority of man on earth. They teach that at creation, God granted dominion over to Adam over the earth. I don't, you know, again, that, that it's there. I don't have a problem. By doing so, then God, what they teach, abdicated his authority and then willingly put himself under the will and word of his creation. Work with me. This is a theological moment. They teach because man is created in the image of God that he is a, quote, copy of God. This means that Adam had a divine nature. With the fall that comes in, however, Adam loses that divine nature. He loses that authority. Sin enters the earth. He loses it to Satan, who now has dominion over the earth. But after conversion, after we encounter Christ, they teach that man regains this divine nature, and with it, this creative power, if I could use that in quotes, will be loosed enough through faith and audible positive confession. Man is therefore described as a little God. Next slide. Every once in a while, my job is to correct. And this teaching confuses the distinction between creator and creation. And further, it suggests the idea of equal and opposite powers, yin and yang if you want to go that far, rather than the biblical idea that God is sovereign over all. See, the historic position of the church has understood that the image of God to mean that man has a mind, has emotions, has a will, we can think in the future, that he has uniquely created, uh, that he is appointed as a, quote, vice regent. We, yes, we do have dominion, we have a responsibility over the earth, but it has never been understood to mean that man has the nature of God. And it certainly has never been understood to mean that man has any authority whatsoever over God. And so there's this teaching out there that reduces God really to a cosmic bellhop. And some of these teachers promote the idea that because God is bound by his word, man can use God's word to make him, God, do things. And this obviously strips God of his kingship, making God neither sovereign nor impotent. Uh, impotent. Omnipotent. Impotent. <laughs> Sex and soul sanctuary go together all the time omnipotent, all-powerful. The stream of teaching also teaches that all bad things are directly brought about in a believer's life by Satan due to either sin in the person's life or a lack of faith. 
They teach that God never wills that we suffer physically or materially. They will reference Isaiah 53 by stripes we were healed to mean physical healing is always available if the believer has enough faith and makes positive confession or claims it. This teaching leads believers to hold actually false hopes <clears throat> that when actually are unfulfilled will leave them worse off than they were before. And this teaching denies that God may sovereignly use any means to mature, to teach, or to correct believers. And finally, it denies the reality that evil is present in a fallen world and that things naturally occur, even to the best of us. So with all that said, isn't it interesting when you just even look at this passage of Scripture that the first thing that God strips from us, if I can put it that way, when we come to him, and 1 Corinthians says that we are not our own, you are bought with the price. He strips us of our control. God reached out to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The first thing he did was strip their sense of control. He tells Abraham out of the blue in Genesis, you know, leave your country, leave your familiarity, leave the land, and I will show you where you're going. In other words, leave everything, every sort of imaginal source of comfort and security, and I'm going to show you somewhere where you don't know where you're going. <clears throat> There had to be a few moments when Abraham wondered, how am I supposed to look forward to that kind of plan? I don't really get it. So in the midst of this control vacuum that Abraham gives up, he builds up what is known as a muscle type of faith. He believed in a God who controlled all things. He trusted him. And he trusted that our father had his best interest in mind, no matter how things looked. And so because of this wandering situation, Abraham, who is actually full of submission and faith, stopped trying to control and instead learned to get under the control of God who he trusted loved him. And every time Abraham tried to take control back, you can read the stories, it messed him up. And this same sort of submission and faith is what Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane and makes it so powerful. Jesus prays, he's about to be crucified, he goes, Abba, he says, Daddy, not just Father, it's Daddy. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. And I think this is absolutely fascinating that right at this point, we get to see Jesus. We witness it firsthand. Unanswered prayer. He essentially asked his father to let him avoid the cross, but that cup doesn't pass from him. His prayer then goes on. He says, yet not my will but yours. Jesus makes a specific request, but he follows it up with an interesting aspect, something that is counter to our culture, and that is one of surrender. We surrender to God. Submission prayers don't sound sexy. They don't. And one of the reasons that God doesn't answer our prayers is that we don't end them, so to speak, with not, uh, but not my will. And as a matter of fact, many times, many of us, we pray to get control rather than pray to be under his control. You know, don't get me wrong at all. We need to ask God for specific things. As a matter of fact, he loves those crazy prayers, and I think that that's what we need to do. God loves it when we verbalize our desires. You know, it's okay to pray, Lord, I'd love to be healed. I, you know, I'd love for it to happen right now. God loves it when we pray so big that only he could make it happen. Don't get me wrong. I love being specific 
And sometimes when we are specific, those answers are so specific that we know that God makes them happen. But it's all about submission and it's all about the attitude of our hearts. But some Christians take God's promises almost to a witchcraft level, if I could put it that way. You know, to such people, they look at the scripture promises and they're used like incantations. And we try to use different prayers and different things to try to control God rather than a reassurance of God's character that God is in control. Paul warns us about these practices in the letter to Galatians. Read it on your own. Paul writes this letter. At, he's addressing the false teachers who are more focused basically on you know, all the right Bible verses, making all the right professions, focusing on more work than submitting to God's grace through faith. He goes on and he says, who has bewitched you? In other words, you know, who's put a spell on you? And sometimes we, we get everything messed up, especially when we put ourselves ahead of God. So in the end, we don't pray to control our circumstances because control isn't even something that we can achieve apart from God. When we pray, we pray in order to submit to the Father who controls the circumstances. We may not have a positive answer to our prayer, but that is not a lack of evidence of faith. That is not a, a evidence of sin uh, in our lives. If we submit to God, we will always end up in a place of greater glory. And that's his will. And it's just a matter of submission. And then Jesus goes on, he continues on. He says, then pray, give us this day our daily bread. That word daily is interesting because it's only found in one other place. That's in Luke chapter 11, verse 3. And up to the last century, no other use of the word was found anywhere else in ancient Greek text or literature. Scholars really struggled for exact meaning how they should translate it until one day they found a fragment of papyrus uh, discovered with this word on it. That little scrap of papyrus actually turned out to be a shopping list. And it was a note to buy supplies for a certain kind of food for the coming day. Isn't that interesting? So this passage is talking though more, not just about your food. It's more than that because bread has a huge significance throughout all of scripture. It's interesting that uh, uh, twice in this brief sentence we have an emphasis on today. Give us today what we need today. Jesus promises us only today. You have no guarantee of tomorrow. You got today. You don't have tomorrow. You don't have next week. You don't even have next year. Jesus is saying, look, we need a daily dependence upon him. After all, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Jesus wants to know that we don't provide for ourselves. Neither does your company, neither does your spouse or your family. We have to have this understanding that God alone provides our needs. He then prays, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are, yeah, as, as also forgiven our debtors. Again, the assumption of Jesus' prayer. He's talking to his disciples. If you're a believer, he's talking to you. He says, forgive people. It's an assumption. You're going to do it. Forgive. Let's think about that. Forgive. In verses 14 and 15, there's like a little PS that's added to the prayer. This is what Jesus says. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others then your father will not forgive your transgressions. Let's just stop for a moment and think about the weight of those words. 
See, the beauty is, is that Jesus promises forgiveness if we forgive other people. He explicitly states that if you do not forgive others, God will not forgive you. At this point in time, you can say amen or ouch, because I know that's resonating with all of us. Because what is he saying here? This is not a passage about salvation. Because Jesus' audience, the disciples, you know, will say that they're saved. They're already followers of him. He is saying that when you refuse to forgive, God withholds a fellowship forgiveness. This means that you will lack, lack intimacy with God. That he is not going to respond to your prayers. Isn't that interesting? We don't like this teaching. This is not the God that I picture in my mind. No, because he's addressing the hearts of our issues. And it sounds severe, but I think we need to remember that the underlying ethic in Jesus' teaching is what? It's love. Love for your heavenly Father and love for people. So God loves you so much that he will allow you to come face to face with our sins and he will confront you with your refusal to forgive by withholding a relationship, a fellowship. And this is to bring about a repentance. This is so that we understand repentance and restoration and love between all the parties involved. This is critical for community. And while most people, especially Christians, agree to the concept of forgiveness in theory, few have mastered what one person called the art of forgiveness. I love what C.S. Lewis said, forgiveness is a beautiful word until you have something to forgive. Robert Jeffries, he wrote a book, said, when forgiveness doesn't make sense, it deals with the major myths of forgiveness. It says forgiveness, you know, again, one of the myths is forgiveness can only be granted to those who remorsefully ask it. In other words, somebody has to grovel to you and beg for forgiveness. Forgiveness releases our offender of any consequences. No, there's consequences when we're sinned against. Forgiveness requires rebuilding a relationship with our offender. No, I think at times we need to have healthy boundaries. Forgiveness means forgetting our offender's actions. You got to be kidding me. Forgiveness should be withheld in some extreme situations. Not according to Jesus. So forgiveness is difficult and it's often illogical. And at times in our lives, if you haven't already, we, you know, if you haven't been already, we, we get hurt deeply by other people, don't we? It may be a family member who mistreats us. It may be a business associate who cheats you. It may be a child who rebels against you. It could be a friend who betrays you. Maybe it's a mate who deserts you. Or maybe it's God who disappoints you. We can't control the hurts that come into our lives. We can, however, choose what to do with those hurts. We can let them make us bitter, or we can release them through forgiveness. And forgiveness doesn't always make sense, but it's the only way that God has given us to effectively resolve the pain of our past. And more importantly, it's the obligation of every Christian. So if you identify yourself as a believer and you're holding unforgiveness against somebody, I think you need to go over these words, and you and God need to have a conversation. You know, how do you respond in light of Jesus' words here? Again, Jesus says, remember the debt that you have been given, been forgiven. 
You know, there are five Greek words in the New Testament for sin. Only one is used in the disciples' prayer that's translated debts. And the word has to do with a balance owed. So here you go. For some of you, this is why Jesus said, forgive us our debts. Because every time you sin, you go into debt to God. You have to, you've taken on an obligation, so to speak, that you cannot even possibly meet. It's like charging $100,000 on a credit card that only has a $1,000 limit, and you only have $1 in the bank. You with me? This is the idea that Jesus is saying, without the credit, but you got, you got it. Because sooner or later, the collection agency is going to become looking for you. And so sin makes us overdrawn debtors to God. And even if we're already Christians, as a result, our fellowship with God is broken. There's a problem. Only compassion and forgiveness can balance the books. And the more that we're aware of our great evil, the more actually that we are able to forgive. You know, if you feel that you're not as sinful as the person sitting next to you, well, then you can't forgive. However, if you know God's forgiveness... If you've experienced God's forgiveness, you will be able to forgive. For a forgiven person is a forgiving person. So let me ask you this morning, are you having trouble forgiving? Whose name has popped into your head when we have began to talk? Because if you're having trouble forgiving, you need to rely on the Holy Spirit to enable you to forgive. That word forgive literally means to release, to let go of. And simply put, forgiveness is letting go of my right to hurt you for hurting me. Forgiveness gives up the right to hurt back. Except for in hockey. One payback's a monster. And they have their head down and I can meet them at the blue line. When you forgive someone, and you're saying, what that person did to me was wrong. That person hurt me deeply. That person deserves to pay for their offense. But today, I'm releasing them of the obligation they have towards me. I'm not forgiving them because they asked to be forgiven or that they deserve to be forgiven. I am forgiving them because of the tremendous forgiveness that God has offered me. Does biblical forgiveness work like a charm? <laughs> Not in the sense that you may think. I don't know if you know this, but I've forgiven a few individuals in my lifetime. But I need to be honest. Fleshly thoughts rise towards those individuals. It rears their ugly head in my life. And when this occurs, whether it's hourly, daily, weekly, monthly, my goal is to release my negative emotions to God. Forgiveness doesn't mean you're going to forget. It means that you're going to let go of your desire to retaliate. I have a lot of desires to retaliate. I joined the club, somebody said, yeah. That's the hardest part for me. Is the desire not to retaliate, the desire not to justify, the desire 
not to explain, to make things right. It's just to shut up and forgive. And that's so hard. And instead, we've got to go back to what Jesus has been saying in the Sermon on the Mount, to love your enemies. Forgive. Pray for those who persecute you. Forgive. And obviously, people, this can't be done on our own. It requires supernatural empowerment. So then, if you can recognize the personal benefit of forgiveness, you need the Holy Spirit just to come and help you on a daily basis process. It's possible to develop a root of bitterness that will destroy you and others. And many of us have seen people who are just bitter. And if you choose not to forgive, you are the only one who will suffer. And in the end, those who don't forgive, you know, those who you're not forgiving are actually holding you hostage. They don't care. They're going on with their life, but you're consumed with it. Just think for a moment of a person or persons that you've chosen not to forgive. If I if I would, I'd challenge you to do this. When you go home, get a Ziploc bag and a potato. Write the name of the person that you're not forgiving, that you're having a hard time with. Put their name on the potato, drop it in the Ziploc bag. And then, this is what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to carry that bag with you everywhere you go. You go, well, that's nuts. No, that's reality. Because what's going to happen to Mr. Potato? Well, when you take it with you to work, to church, to the shower the table, even in your bed, that bag is not only going to become quite liquidy, it's going to become quite heavy. And it's going to carry on over time. You're going to be lugging it around. You pay attention to it all the time, right? Because it's capturing your attention. You're carrying Mr. Potato with you everywhere you go. You're paying attention to it. You're remembering not to leave it in embarrassing places, right? Because it's your potato. You don't want other people to see your potato. You don't want them to give you hassle over your potato, but I challenge you, write your name of your person that you don't want to forgive on a potato and take it with you everywhere you go. Because over time, what happens is Mr. Potato is becoming moldy. It's going to become smelly, right? It's going to begin to sprout eyes. And this is what happens when we refuse to forgive. We often think forgiveness is a gift to the other person, but clearly it's a gift to ourselves. Save yourself some grief, people. Unload, your forgi- unload that unforgiveness today. That's what Jesus is teaching us here at the church. When Jesus deals with our spiritual concerns, he prays, don't lead us into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Again, that, that word translated temptation could also mean testing or trial. And as a matter of fact, prior to the time of the New Testament, this word only meant testing and trial. And so Jesus is apparently teaching that we should pray to God that God would allow us to escape trials. The idea of escape is carried on when he says, deliver us from evil. Most English versions read, deliver us from the evil one, which is actually a better translation of what we have here. The point of all this is that you and I are incapable of handling spiritual problems on our own. We need God's help in our lives. He alone is capable of handling each and every problem we face. Just let go of the control. Apply some forgiveness. Now we come to a place in verse 13 that some Bibles have it in, some don't, where it says, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. This is interesting. Scholars tell us that some of these words are probably not part of the original prayer that was taught by Jesus. They were actually added later to the doxology, a doxology of praise. 
They may not be part of the original, but they, they make actually a fitting conclusion to the prayer. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. So whether it was inspired, these words remind us that God is great and that he is in control. And as you reflect on these words, as you take some time, and I trust you do, go home and read this passage over again, and, and recognize that when you fail to pray, you're basically saying that you can do it on your own. And this is the epitome of arrogance that Jesus is trying to deal with. So we need to acknowledge our needs, and we need to pray without pride. And we just come humbly before the Lord. And it's kind of fitting that Jesus ends this section with fasting. The discipline of fasting. He says, when you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they're fasting. Oh, that's just too funny. I'm hungry. I used to have a kid. We called him Starvin' Marvin. He was one of my four boys, right? I won't tell you which one, but he was number two. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he would always come Saturday mornings to the bed and say, I'm hungry. It's just like, go make yourself a sandwich. I couldn't care less. I was a bad dad. But Starvin' Marvin was always in our face, and you could feel his nostrils bling, you know, going at him. And that's, you know, that's the picture whenever I read this, is this, these disfigured faces to show others that, in this case, that they're fasting and not just hungry. And he, Jesus says, I'll tell you the truth, they've received the reward in full, but when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face. So that it's not going to be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your Father who's unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do you notice how Jesus comes back? He starts it off in verse 1, comes back here, and he finishes it up. And as far as I can determine when I look into the scripture, fasting is not commanded in the Bible at all, unless you draw from it Leviticus 16, which is about the Day of Atonement. And it was the only specific fast mentioned in the Old Testament, but the Jewish leaders also appointed different fasting days to remember specific times in, in the stress of Israel's history. But what we do know from historical accounts is that the Pharisees, they, tw they fasted twice a week. Well, when they fasted, though, obviously they looked miserable, and they tried to draw attention to themselves. You know, it's almost like, look at me, I'm fasting, look at me. You know, Monty Python style. And Jesus says, look, don't be like them. Instead, be positive examples of Scripture. And in the Old Testament, the believers did fast. In Nehemiah and Daniel, Jesus fasted in preparation to his earthly ministry uh, and, and implied that Christian disciples would also fast uh, following his brief ministry. And, and the early church, there's records of it fasting as well. So fasting, although not directly commanded in any New Testament letters, it seems to be assumed, an assumed practice of the followers of Jesus Christ. So here's another question, do you fast? So what is fasting? Well, in Scripture, fasting is typically the abstaining of food for the purpose of devoting oneself, ourself, and our time with God. Spending controlled time with God. We don't think of fasting as a way to get something from God. I don't fast to get something from God. We fast as a means of drawing closer to God. We do Fasting Fridays here at the church. You can click on our social media. You can send us emails and requests, and we pray for you. We take time out. We take specific times. We don't eat for the most part because some of us do and some of us don't, and it's whatever. I don't care what your doctor says, whatever, but it's a designated time for the day that we focus on praying for the church community. And we encourage you guys to follow along with us. Well, how do I be a part of it? Well, just go on Facebook, Instagram, whatever, and if somebody's clicked like, pray for them. 
Well, I don't know what specifically to pray for. You don't need to, and neither do we. We just come before God and ask God to intercede whatever is in their life. We need to be a praying community. We need to be a praying church. And this is what Jesus is doing. Join. Join with him. Be keenly aware of your dependence on God, especially when you're very hungry. It's designed to stir us towards God, but we got to be careful of our motives. You know, we don't think like, well, is this going to help me lose weight and purify my system? That's not what it's about. Fasting is to purify our hearts, to spend time focusing on God, to learn to deny the physical in order to grow our spiritual. Fasting also, we see, is for repentance, for sorrow, and for different types of purification. It really just helps us become more sensitive and aware of who God is. And I'll just say this. If you're going to take on a fast of sorts, start small. Don't go, I'm going 40 days like Jesus. No, go to your doctor and make sure your doctor gives you the okay, you know? Just do, like, try a meal. Most people can't even do a meal without complaining for crying out loud. So the motive and the manner are crucial. The length and the frequency are optional. Those are neither here. Jesus cares about our motives. And that's why he says, give without fanfare, pray without pride, and fast without notice. Do the right thing in the right way. It's been said that the secret of religion is religion in secret. My worth to God in public is what I am in private. So again, who are you when nobody's looking? I think that becomes the ultimate question. That's a heavy teaching for this morning. It gives you a whole lot to talk about at lunch. Of course, unless you're fasting, then you'll just be talking to God, and he'll be convicting you. Um, Maybe you're here and you're, beginning to explore who Jesus is. And you're wondering what the religious expectations are. I think I just sort of outlined a little bit that this is what Jesus requires of us as followers of him. And I I, I hope today, again, any given Sunday, I I never know who walks in, but maybe you've begun to hear Jesus calling, not for religion, but for a, a response. And so I want to encourage all of us, whether you've been a seasoned Christian or you're not a Christian, you don't even identify with that, to explore that relationship. And I challenge all of us today to ask God to speak to us. Because in a room this size, it goes without question that there are people here who are harboring unforgiveness. And maybe it's against your spouse. Maybe it's against another family member. Maybe against a work, ministry partner, something. Maybe it's against your pastor. But you can't walk away from this teaching without going, I need God to speak to me on some issues here. Maybe you're sensing a tugging on your heart. Maybe you're feeling really uncomfortable. Maybe you're crying. I always add that, chalk that up to that's the Holy Spirit. That has nothing to do with me. That's just God revealing himself, trying to get your attention. The question is, do we submit to his will or do we make it ours? We're all called to repent. Some of us just already answered the call, so what about you today? Maybe you're here at the point, you just go, I got to turn around my life. I got to get things back on track. Is that you? Jesse, Josh, if you and your team can come back up. I finished early 
Man, I feel good. Because that was a 14-page message. I just want you to know that. I'm a little thankful our deaf community didn't come because that meant I could talk a whole lot faster. I'm writing this message and I, I can't help but think going back to the issue of unforgiveness. And I can't help but think, and I don't know where you want to go, so you pick a song, let your team know with this, but keep it slow, because I want us to be reflective here. We just got a few minutes. You know, we don't, we don't come to church, right, because we are the church. We come to soul. And, and I think one of the greatest things is that we can come into this place, and you can walk away encouraged, you can walk away uplifted, you can walk away knowing that you sang praises of to God, that you've met with people, that you've seen friends that you haven't seen all week, you can walk away being encouraged. I hope you have been encouraged today. My job actually is try to make people laugh at some point because when the heavy stuff comes, you can at least remember the laughter and try to ignore the heavy stuff. But really, my job, the way I see it, the way that God has called me, is to call people to life transformation. I can't do it. It's only the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm just a vessel, and there's a mouthpiece that promotes who God is. And it's up to you to buy into that promotion. And I'm not making a sales pitch out of God here. I'm just saying what it is. And that many times when we walk through the doors, the different people who carry so heavy burdens, and there's people in our community that just... They're battling physical stuff, cancer, other things. We are behind you, and we are praying for you. There are those who are dealing with mental illness issues. We are behind you. We are praying for you. There are others of you, you walked in, you're dealing with family issues and other things. We are behind you. We are praying for you. But now it comes down to you and God. So are you at the place today to where you can just say, I need to surrender to God. I need to give him my stuff. You know, we do this, this, this hand exercise, this, this exercise where I invite you to look into your palms. You can do this with me if you don't want to. I don't really care. But you look in your palms. You put all the stuff in your palms that ca- that, that's going. Maybe there is unforgiveness in your life. And you squeeze your hands. Maybe there's, there's physical issues, there's mental issues, there's spiritual issues, there's things going on where you need a touch of God. Maybe it's financial. And those things are just consuming you. And you squeeze it and you feel the pressure. And God just says, hey, Turn your hands over. And so when you turn your hands over, he says, now open your hands up and let it go and allow gravity to take its course. And what happens is that the pressure's off the hands, the pressures are off the fingers. Whatever we've been holding on to, figuratively, we have just let go and allowed to fall to the ground. But now our hands are exposed and wide open. And what does he do? He says, turn your hands back up towards me. And we do as an act of what? Surrender. And in this act of surrender, in this act of my palms are open, my heart is open, I am wide open to God. It's an act of surrender. God, I just need you to fill me. And maybe that's your prayer today. That God, you would just fill me. Heal me, Lord, of my wounds. Forgive me of my sins. Help me to forgive in my unforgiveness heal my body, heal my mind, heal my spirit. I invite your Holy Spirit just to indwell within me and make me the person that you have created me to be. Maybe you need to turn and change your life and make 
Jesus Lord of your life and maybe you haven't put a, got all the answers together but you're, you're stepping in that direction then let me just encourage you if that is you I'm going to have our, our staff right now just begin to move over to my right and they're going to go to that cross they're going to be there and if that is you and you, you need to make a, con, a confession of faith to God just pray this with me Lord I, I recognize you as my Lord and Savior I'm sorry for the things in my life that have displeased you. Thank you for coming to earth to die in my place. Thank you for taking away my sin. And I believe in you and I receive you into my life. God, help me to rely on you in these days to come. Help me to follow you that I can grow to become like you. In Jesus' name. If you've prayed that, that's your first time you've ever prayed us, tell us before you leave. There's a welcome card on your seat. Fill it out. Hand it in at the desk on your way out. Or you can make your way to the cross here. Tell us. We'd love to meet with you. We'd love to do coffee with you. We'd love to pour into your life and tell you what the next steps are just for you in this whole process. But this is what I want to do. For the others as well, if you're here and you're holding on to unforgiveness, Come, let us pray for you before you go. Let us pray that the Holy Spirit would just empower you to release who you need to release. That you would take your potato and leave it here. You know what I'm saying? The question is, do you want to give up your potato? Because we want to hurt people even though they don't even feel it. So if that's what God is speaking to you, come talk with our staff. Our prayer team, Lana, if you're here, and the other prayer teams, if they can, can come. And we just want to be able to support you uh, as before you move out and have something to go with. So, Father, we acknowledge that you are not some detached, impersonal God. You are our Father in heaven. We make your name hallowed and sacred and special, which means we celebrate this intimate, intimate attribute with you. And God, so we ask for your heavenly plan to manifest in our lives, knowing that you provide daily bread for us. God, we will live innocently today, free of grudges and unforgiveness in response to your gift of forgiveness. And so help us to avoid all alternative ways of living through your infinite power that we will forever revel in. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need just to have us pray with you, just begin to move your way to the cross. In ancient times, the one who blessed extended his hands for blessing. Those receiving blessing did likewise. Here it is, people. May the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness. May he protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders that he has shown you. And may he bring you home rejoicing once again through our doors. And may you do the right thing in the right way. Be blessed, and we see you next week. Father's Day, I think I'm doing judgment, my favorite.